Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for that wonderful truth, that through the blood of Jesus Christ, we might now come to you as Father. We might take our place in your family. And so, Father, we pray now as we come to your word, that by your Spirit you would be at work in our hearts. Plant it deep. Cause it to grow and bud and flourish, that it might bear fruit in our lives in the days ahead. That we who are in Christ Jesus might rejoice in the freedom he has brought us with his blood. And that we might live lives of thanksgiving that bring glory to his name. Amen. Amen. Well, uh, please do take a seat and uh, keep your Bibles open at uh, Exodus chapter 5. You are subject to me, thundered the king. And the land on which I am sitting is mine. And no one has resisted my overlordship with impunity. He was seated on his throne, and his loyal subjects were gathered behind him. Ahead of him, his adversary continued to advance, seemingly ignoring the king's warning. I command you, therefore, not to rise onto my land, nor to presume to wet the clothing or limbs of your master. Ah. You see, the year was probably 1028, and the throne was on a beach somewhere in the south of England. The king was Canute, and his chosen opponent was, well... It was the sea. You see, Canute was was at the height of his power. He'd been king of a united England for 12 years, king of Denmark for 10, and he just announced himself king of all Norway and some of Sweden. With so much of northern Europe subject to his mighty rule, surely the sea would also submit to his demands. And in our reading this evening, uh, we encounter another king at the top of his game and facing a threat. Let's read again from verse 1 of chapter 5. Afterwards, Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and said, This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Let my people go so that they may hold a festival to me in the wilderness. Pharaoh said, Who is the Lord, that I should obey him and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and I will not let Israel go. Who is the Lord, that I should obey him? Pharaoh might as well have said what Canute did. No one has resisted my overlordship with impunity. Just because two upstart Hebrews come into his presence and demand that he let the Israelites go doesn't mean that he's about to release his prime stock of slave labor. After all, 
He is the king of Egypt. Who dares to challenge him? When Moses and Aaron repeat the Lord's command, Pharaoh's response is to the point. Verse 4. But the king of Egypt said, Moses and Aaron, why are you taking the people away from their labor? Get back to your work. Pharaoh doesn't recognize the God of the Hebrews. He doesn't care for Yahweh. He has no interest in fulfilling his request. In fact, Pharaoh's going to do everything he can to make sure that the Israelites regret ever even dreaming of their freedom. He is the king of Egypt. No one challenges the king of Egypt. And so here in the the chapters we've read tonight, we see the battle lines being drawn. Tension ratcheted up. Pharaoh is ready for a fight and he will not back down. Just like Canute centuries later, the king of Egypt has set up his throne. He has assumed his place of power and he intends to show that no one, no one can resist his rule. And in the verses that follow, we we get an insight into the vicious, vindictive nature of Pharaoh. He's determined to grind this Israelite community into the ground. Verse 6, that same day, Pharaoh gave this order to the slave drivers and overseers in charge of the people. You are no longer to supply the people with straw for making bricks. Let them go and gather their own straw, but require them to make the same number of bricks as before. Don't reduce the quota. They are lazy. That is why they're crying out, let us go and sacrifice to our God. Make the work harder for the people so that they keep working and pay no attention to lies. What we've seen all the way through the book of Exodus so far is that this is the latest installment in the great epic that is God's activity here in this universe. And Pharaoh here is is simply the latest in a long line of those who oppose Yahweh, who reject his rule and resist his work in human history. He's not only a a despotic tyrant bent on brutalizing and abusing the ancient Israelites. He is also directly opposing God and his word in this world. Moses and, and Aaron have declared the word of the Lord to Pharaoh, Pharaoh now dismisses that declaration as lies. And I wonder, did you notice when we heard it read earlier that that he sets up his own word in direct opposition? In verse 1, we we heard, this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. Later that day, the slave drivers and overseers would declare in verse 9, this is what Pharaoh says. God's word dismissed as lies, Pharaoh's word set up in its place. Oh, and that takes us right back to the very beginning. Right back to the deep, fundamental opposition that Yahweh faces in this world. Way back in in Genesis chapter 3, we first encounter the serpent. Did God really say is his refrain. You will not surely die. 
the father of lies says as he leads our first parents astray. And then, well, well, then he sets up an alternative with his own words. An alternative where, where God is not for humanity, where God is, is not gracious and kind, where God is not God. It's a lie. But it's a lie that we continue to believe day by day. A lie that, that leads us into misery, into suffering. A lie that leads ultimately to death. And ever since that first act of rebellion, that first refusal to take God at his word, well, ever since then, humankind has borne the consequences of our sin. And that ancient snake, the devil, leads the whole world astray. And he does so very often through human agents. You know, it's not in the biblical record, but we know from archaeology that the pharaohs of Egypt were marked out by the symbol of a snake. They bore the image of, of a cobra on their crown to confirm their legitimacy as king and to symbolize their power. And it's no coincidence that, that in the previous chapter we saw God turn Moses' staff into a snake, a snake from which Moses recoiled in horror only for the Lord to instruct him to take hold of it, to grip it, to overcome it. Because you see, as well as introducing us to the serpent, Genesis 3 also spoke of the serpent crusher. One who would come from humanity's ranks. One who would stand up to the father of lies. One who would be bruised by his attacks, but one who would ultimately crush that great enemy of God and his people. Defeating once and for all, all who stand in opposition to Yahweh, the true and living God. And so what we see throughout scripture before that, that final and decisive victory is this battle play out again and again. The serpent rears his head and causes great pain and distress, suffering and destruction. Only to be overcome, to be defeated, to be crushed by those who point us towards the serpent crusher who would one day come. And so as this particular episode unfolds, it shouldn't surprise us to hear echoes of the serpent, of his lies in what we see of Pharaoh and his vile treatment of the ancient Israelites. But we must be careful to see also the beautiful glimpses that we get of our coming saviour, of the one who will see off the father of lies once and for all. There is a great salvation coming in the book of Exodus. But even that only points us forwards to the greater salvation still. For now, though, let's get back to ancient Egypt, because what happens next is not what we might expect. The Israelites complain to Pharaoh about their new, even harsher conditions, and he doubles down. They will continue to make bricks without straw, and they will continue to meet their quota. But then verse 20. 
When they left Pharaoh, the Israelite overseers found Moses and Aaron waiting to meet them. And they said, may the Lord look on you and judge you. You have made us obnoxious to Pharaoh and his officials and have put a sword in their hands to kill us. Moses turned to the Lord and said, Why, Lord, why have you brought trouble on this people? Is this why you sent me? Ever since I went to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he has brought trouble on this people. And you have not rescued your people at all. The Israelites, even Moses, begin to doubt God's goodness. They doubt his power to act. They doubt his willingness to act. You have not rescued your people at all, is Moses' anguished cry. They've begun to to believe the lie of Pharaoh, that Yahweh does not care, that he cannot save, that he is not for his people. And friends, do we not also know that feeling? How often does it seem as though God does not see? He does not hear. He does not step in and and rescue his people. Every time we reflect on the suffering in our world, every time we feel that suffering close to, every time we hear of our brothers and sisters around the world persecuted and bullied for their faith in this God, every time we are excluded or mocked, passed over or pushed out because we belong to Yahweh. Every time life gets harder, not better, are we not tempted to join in Moses' complaint? You have not rescued your people at all. Dear friends, it is for that, that reason that we must listen so well to the Lord's response. And we must dig deep into his answer because it is in these words that we will hear his marvelous rejection of Pharaoh's lies. His wonderful riposte to that nagging doubt that chips away at the faith of his people. Chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Moses, Now you will see what I will do to Pharaoh. Because of my mighty hand, he will let them go. Because of my mighty hand, he will drive them out of his country. Just wait and see, says the Lord. Be patient and wait and see. Not only will Pharaoh let you go, he will positively drive you out. I will rescue my people. How can you know? Well, because, verse 2, because I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, the Lord, I did not make myself known to them. 
I also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan where they resided as foreigners. Moreover, I've heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving and I have remembered my covenant. It's not so much that that those who came before didn't know God as Yahweh. We hear them use the name multiple times in Genesis. It's more that they never really fully appreciated what it means for God to be Yahweh. Never saw the the full-orbed glory of who Yahweh is. Never knew the depths of, of his commitment to his people. Now, well now, Moses will see. Now the Israelites will see. Verse 6, therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. That day in 1028, on that beach in the south of England, well, it wasn't long until the waves began to lap at King Canute's feet. As he sat on his majestic throne, the seawater began to soak up the hem of his cloak. It mattered not how powerful he was, nor how loud he shouted. The tide was inevitable. The sea was untamable. And it is with that level of certainty, that inevitability, that Yahweh now decrees the outcome of Pharaoh's obnoxious defiance. It matters not how powerful Pharaoh is, nor how loud he shouts. The Lord will redeem his people. Why? Because he is Yahweh. Six times in this chapter and in the first few verses of the next, six times we hear God proclaim, I am Yahweh. I am Yahweh. This is how he will show Moses, show his people who he is. This is how he will demonstrate what it means for him to be Yahweh. I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. The outcome is as certain as the rising tide. Yahweh will triumph. Yahweh's people will be redeemed. And yet still, the ancient Israelites cannot believe it. Verse 9. Moses reported this to the Israelites, but they did not listen to him because of their discouragement 
and harsh labor. How often, I wonder, do we fail to believe God's promises because of our circumstances? Because we look at the world around us, at our lives, and and we feel discouraged, downhearted, unable simply to see beyond our immediate suffering. And I guess that raises a question, doesn't it? Why do it like this? If the outcome really was inevitable, if Pharaoh could never really stand against Yahweh, then why wait so long to save his people? Why did things have to get harder before they got better? Well, I think we get something of an answer at the beginning of chapter 7. Turn there with me now. I'm going to read from verse 2. God said to Moses, you are to say everything I command you. And your brother Aaron is to tell Pharaoh to let the Israelites go out of his country. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart. And though I multiply my signs and wonders in Egypt, he will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt, and with mighty acts of judgment, I will bring out my divisions, my people, the Israelites. And the Egyptians will know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring the Israelites out of it. You see, uh, that image of of Pharaoh planting his throne and and defying Yahweh, well, well, that's only part of the picture. In reality, the sovereign God of the universe was always completely in control. It was Yahweh who engineered this confrontation. Yahweh who brought it about. Why? Well, so that Moses and Pharaoh the Israelites and the Egyptians, so that they might all know that Yahweh is God. And not just know up here, but really, truly know that they might experience the reality of of Yahweh's sovereignty, of his majesty, of his justice, of his mercy. God's people could not know God as saviour if they had never known what it was to need saving. They could never know him as redeemer if they had never needed redeeming. Do you see the fullness of, of God's character The beauty of his identity, it is revealed precisely through his saving action. Stretching out his mighty hand in mighty acts of judgment to bring his people home. In generations to come, the the ancient Israelites wouldn't speak of who Yahweh was in, in the abstract. A fine philosophy, a powerful ideal. No, They would speak of his justice and mercy in the concrete history of their salvation from from Egypt. They would point to the events of the Exodus to demonstrate his love for them, to prove his commitment to his people. 
And you know, we too may, may know the reality of God's merciful salvation. Not only by looking to the Exodus, but so much more by looking to the greater salvation to which the Exodus points us. Not only by seeing God's mighty hand stretched out against Pharaoh, but so much more by seeing the hands of God's Son, Jesus Christ, stretched out on a Roman cross. As he takes upon himself the most mighty act of judgment, redeeming by his own blood a people of his very own. I will take you as my own people, he declares, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh. It is only as we experience the reality of our need for a saviour, only as we know the pain of the consequences of our sin, only as we see how desperately our whole world needs redeeming, it is only then that we may truly know what it means for our God to be Yahweh. And it is only as we look to the cross that we may see the beauty of his majesty, the magnitude of his power, and the depth of his love. When you're wondering what God is doing, says Tim Chester, when you doubt his kindness, when you're struggling to trust him, when life gets harder rather than better, look to the cross. See how God himself bears his own judgment out of love for you to redeem you. In bringing his people out of Egypt, the living God was going to effect a salvation so astonishing, so magnificent, that the whole world would know that Yahweh and not Pharaoh was Lord and God. In going to the cross, our Savior Jesus Christ has overcome the great serpent himself once and for all, redeeming his people from slavery to sin, setting them free once and for all, gathering to himself a people of his very own, his precious possession, bought at great cost, loved to great depths. Not just in theory, but in history, in reality, such that we might know, that we might really know that Yahweh is God. You know, eventually, King Canute got it. As the water lapped around his ankles, as his powerlessness in the face of creation was laid bare, he issued a proclamation. 
Let all the world know, he said, that the power of kings is empty and worthless. And there is no king worthy of the name, save him by whose will heaven, earth, and the sea obey eternal laws. It's said that 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 day he took off his crown and never put it on again. So convinced was he of the glory and majesty, power and authority of his creator and king. Friends, when we find ourselves tempted to believe the lies of the devil, to be consumed by our our circumstance, to doubt the goodness of God, well then let us consider a far greater expression of our God's power than even the waves of the sea. Let us turn our eyes to the exodus. Let us fix our hearts on the cross. For there we may hear our loving Savior declare in triumph, I will take you as my own people and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. Let's pray. Oh, Yahweh, almighty God, creator and king, powerful and majestic, teach us to know that you are Yahweh. Lord, when so much of this world presses in around us, when the lies of the devil seem so loud in our ears, point our eyes towards the cross of your Son, Jesus Christ, that we might see there that you are a God who sees a God who hears, a God who has acted in history, in mighty judgment, so that we, your people, might be free. 